Spiritual leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, has repeated the death sentence against the author Salman Rushdie. The Foreign Office has deplored it, the Prime Minister and opposition leaders have condemned it. Mrs Thatcher said, it is much to be regretted that threats of this nature are made. Salman Rushdie is probably the world's best-known living novelist. But that comes with an asterisk, as he knows. People who've never so much as picked up a book of his authorship can probably recall, oh yeah, he's the guy the Ayatollah wanted to have killed. 31 years ago, Rushdie wrote the novel The Satanic Verses. His portrayal of Muhammad outraged the hardcore leader of Iran who issued a fatwa, a death sentence against Rushdie. In the years since, the order of execution has been walked back, reimposed, reissued by al-Qaeda. You see the pattern. Rushdie has written eight novels since the Satanic Verses and sundry nonfiction, among them his memoir, Joseph Anton, about his life as a marked man. One thing he no longer writes are tweets. When Twitter began to feel to him like a lynch mob, he posted his last one, a kind of coda, on Election Day 2016. His latest novel is The Golden House, about a rich immigrant family keeping its secrets in New York City in the age of Trump. The book brought Rushdie to Los Angeles and to our discussion at the Ace Theater for the LA Times Ideas Exchange. This is actually the third time yeah. that you and I have spoken. And the first time was in a secure, undisclosed location. But I remember very vividly that I was struck first by the fact that you were wearing Mickey Mouse socks. Yeah, well, it was a comment on the age. He's not wearing them now. No, but now we're in an insecure and disclosed location. <laughs> <laughs> but it did say something to me about you and your work that's often overlooked, which is how vital humor is. You know, when I started out writing, people used to say that the books were funny. And then I think what happened to the satanic verses was so not funny that it made people think the books couldn't be funny, including the satanic verses, which is quite funny. You know? And it's only now that people are beginning to bubble up saying, you know, they're quite funny, these books. And I like that. I mean, I, I, because I don't, as a reader, I don't like books that have no sense of humor. And as David Garrick said on his deathbed, dying is easy, comedy is hard. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, but I agree with that. You know, I mean, it's much harder. Making people cry is much easier than making people laugh. You can't explain comedy. You know, if you have to say, you know, the reason this is funny is, <laughs> it doesn't work. But I want to talk first about the, the, this book, which is set chiefly in New York. It spans the period from the election of Barack Obama to the advent of a weird-haired president you call the Joker. Yeah. His hair, is, his hair is green, completely different. This is, in a way, about the Joker, but also about the house of the family, surnamed Golden. Maybe you could explain a bit about the story. Yeah, well, what happened is two things came together for me. I had actually had the idea of this, of this particular family with its shady secrets from India, from Bombay, my old hometown where they'd been involved in clearly quite suspicious activity. The old patriarch decides that he wants to get out of all that, and, and so he goes to enormous and elaborate lengths to, to 
to reinvent his family, to go halfway across the world, change their name, refuse to admit anything about the past. The previous novel, Two Years, Eight Months, 28 Nights, which is also a New York novel, but it's sort of a fairy tale of New York. You know, it has, it has like genies and flying carpets and stuff. And I thought almost immediately that I finished it, I thought, you know, maybe write the opposite of this novel. Maybe kind of hold the genies, you know, and write a social panoramic novel that's, that's essentially realistic, you know. And then somehow those two ideas click went clicked together. And so I can tell the story of this dysfunctional, broken family inside the larger story of a dysfunctional, broken country. They all live in this, in this neighborhood in, in Greenwich Village, which I call the gardens, which, which exists like a stage on which the action can take place, surrounded by the hurly-burly of America. Everybody who's living around them who's in the book, they're all immigrants. And so I wanted it to be a portrait of a, a, a sort of immigrant, an immigrant city. And that was very consciously what I wanted to set out to do. Even though you conceived of the Goldens originally some time ago, there is a little bit of overlap with the Joker. Unfortunately, the man who renames himself as Nero Golden is in the real estate business. <laughs> and, and he also likes to put his name very large on his buildings. Which, and, and his name is Golden. <laughs> so, but, but, in, but he's completely unlike Mr. Trump in, in every other way, because actually he's, I think, as close as I've come to writing a tragic character. He's sucked into a dangerous world, which is the world of the mob, and he wants to get out of it, you know, and, and he, partly because his family is being threatened and so on, you know, and then he fails. He fails to protect any of them. And I think you end up feeling very compassionate towards him. As you conceive the Golden family, then, how did they have to change to accommodate the realities of the Joker? It was being written during the election campaign, obviously. It became clear to me that everybody was obsessed with this, with this phenomenon, um, the Trump phenomenon. And I thought it, it would be absurd not to, not to refer to it. And so it found its way into the book. But I think of it as background rather than foreground. also spend time in the book exploring what really is the sense of American character. We get the sense of reinvention, we get the sense of the immigrant experience, but, but there's always a battle over this notion of a single identity. And, and we have always been a practical country, an aspirational country, but now within the course of a handful of months, the idea of achievement and accomplishment has somehow been turned on its ear. And you yeah. do spend time in the book, and maybe I can find that while you speak to it about that. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, one of the big themes of the book is, is that of identity, because it seems so central to what's going on. I mean, first of all, and most obviously, the central family is, is coming to America to change its identity. But it's coming to an America which is also very anguished about its own national identity, about what is it to be an American, which is also anguished about race, race and what that does to American identity, and are very anguished about gender identity and so on. So, so all these things are churning around here now. Here it is on uh, uh, 
59. How does one live amongst one's fellow countrymen and countrywomen when you don't know which of them is numbered amongst the 60 million plus who brought the horror to power? Or when your fellow Americans tell you that knowing things is elitist and they hate elites? And all you have ever had is your mind and you were brought up to believe in the loveliness of knowledge, not that knowledge is power nonsense, but knowledge is beauty. And then all of that, education, art, music, film, becomes a reason for being loathed, and the creature out of Spiritus Mundi rises up and slouches towards Washington, D.C. to be born. <laughs> One of the things that I really, to be in my bonnet, is this inversion of the word elite. Here you have a government with more billionaires in it than any government in the history of the United States. And what, journalists and college professors and novelists are the elite? You know, not the people with private planes and beachfront properties in the Bahamas. No, they have the ear of the people, you know. But we're the elite, you know. We don't, I mean, I think if we're so elite, why aren't we rich? <laughs> um, but it's, no, really, I think it's the most extraordinary inversions. The people telling the lies accuse the people telling the truth of lying. You know, that's called fake news. So when you live in this world of scrambled reality, you know, I mean, I found it actually changed my attitude towards my writing quite seriously. I thought, if we live in this world in which everybody's lying every day, all the time about everything, and in which, thanks to the internet, we're unable to distinguish between truth and fiction. Again, with the setting of New York, this, this is the Gilded Age plus 100 some years yeah. in New York. And once again, we see money exhibiting its power. Yeah. It's the gauge of society. It's the gauge of success. There was the New York of Edith Wharton. There was the New York of the Fitzgerald and the Gatsby yeah. area. So what is the New York of, of Donald Trump? Actually, to prepare for this book, I did try and read some of those books that you've just mentioned. I wanted to read about these great writers' portraits of realist portraits of America. And then there's, you know, the figure of Trump is the one which just doesn't fit, doesn't compute, because he's not like the city. You know, the odd thing is, you know, 90% of New York voted against Trump. 90% of it. They hate him. You know, and, and what's more, they got his number a long time ago. And, you know, basically, America is finding out what New York already knew. And speak a little bit about how characters dictate themselves to you, whether you want them to or not. I, I think that if they're not doing that to some degree, they're not alive. You know, I think when a character comes to life, in, first in the imagination and then on the page, it's because the character begins to reveal things to you which you hadn't thought before about themselves, about themselves, you know. And, um, and so I've often described what I do as not so much writing as listening. Once the character is set, the destiny is set, you know? And I remember there's this wonderful story about Charles Schultz when he announced that he was going to stop drawing the Peanuts comic strip. The Peanuts site, website, was bombarded by fans begging that before he stopped, there was just one thing they would like him to allow to happen. Please, you know, just once, let Charlie Brown kick the football. <laughs> and, and he wouldn't do it. If Charlie Brown kicked the football, 
he would in some crucial way stop being Charlie Brown. You know? And if Lucy just once didn't whip the football away at the last minute, then her Luciness would be impaired. One of the characters you put into this Dickensian setting hmm. is a character who is the second wife oh, yes. of Nero Golden, Vasilisa, yeah. who is a Russian, a beautiful woman who has to make her way in the world through her beauty. And there's a passage about how she does it yeah. when it comes. So perhaps you want to explain the context and then read this yeah, passage well, uh, of Vasilisa. Well, well, she's a gold digger. Look, let's... <laughs> <laughs> this passage is based on something that somebody actually told me that happened to them in New York. Fell in love, he fell for this Russian girl in New York. And, and on the third date, she got down to business. And, and she produced from her pocketbook a card with tick boxes, pre-printed card that, that they had to work through um, in order to do the deal of the relationship. So let me, I'll just read, this is, the, this is the not very exaggerated fictional version of that. Then on the third night, she discusses business. This is not a shock to him. This makes things easier. Business is his comfort zone. She produces a printed card the size of a postcard with boxes to tick. Let's go through the details, she says. Obviously, I should not stay in the house on McDougal. That is your family home for yourself and your sons. So you could choose A, a residence in the West Village for convenience, for ease of access, or B, on the Upper East Side for a little distance, a little more discretion. Very well, B, this is also my preference. We proceed to the car, and I leave this to you completely. A, Mercedes convertible, B, BMW 6 Series, C, Lexus SUV. Oh, A, so nice, I love you. The question arises of where I will have accounts. A, Bergdorf, B, Barneys, C, both of the above. <laughs> Fendi, Gucci, Prada, this goes without saying. The subject of a monthly allowance. You see the categories are 10, 15, 20. I recommend generosity. Yes, in thousands of dollars, darling. Perfect, you will not regret, I promise you. This is all for now. <laughs> but the weird thing about her, I have to tell you this, is that I thought, She's like the worst character, the worst person in the book. She's completely self-seeking and ruthless. And I have found the early readers of the book saying to me, we really like her. <laughs> I, I go, really? And they say, yeah, Vasilisa, the Russian girl, we dig her. I say, I say, she's so bad. And they say, but she's completely herself. And, you know, there's no bullshit. She knows what she wants, and she's like a heat-seeking missile. And, and, and I, thought, I thought, you know, I guess it's sometimes the villain is more attractive than the hero. In fiction... There's a balance between making a contemporary novel feel contemporary with contemporary references and, mm. or making it so much in the moment that it doesn't feel 10 or 50 years hence to a reader that it's a period piece. Yeah. When you bring in the Joker into this, mm. when you bring such a contemporary and identifiable yeah, moment yeah. 
to make it resonate universally. It's very, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous thing to do, that's true. And it's a thing which any creative writing professor would tell you not to do. No. I felt that there's kind of a, that, that danger, the danger of working so close to the present moment is very real. If you do it wrong, then the book becomes simply yesterday's news, yesterday's papers, you know, very quickly. And if you do it right, then you capture a moment for all time. Since we were mentioning Fitzgerald, that he does very well is that thing about capturing the moment, you know? And so that now if we look back at the so-called jazz age, it, it's very difficult not to see it a little bit through the eyes of, of Scott Fitzgerald, you know? So that's the goal. The goal is to try and, if you capture it properly, then contemporary readers have the pleasure of recognition. They have the pleasure of saying, oh yeah, this is how it is. And future readers, hopefully, looking at it, will think, oh yeah, so that's how it was. The Golden family immigrates to the United States because it is fleeing from something, mm -hmm. more than to something. Most people come here for something. When you became a citizen, what were you feeling? What, what were the impulses there for you? The impulse was clear that there was a certain point at which I realized that I was not leaving. You know, that, that, I, that it was not a temporary condition that I had come to live in New York. And, and then I thought, if, if, if you're clear about that, if you're clear about the fact that this is where you're going to live, then you should belong. And I had been frustrated in the two Obama elections that I wasn't able to vote. So I got myself a vote. Went well. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you are a citizen, do you look, do you think you look at the country differently? Yes, I, on that day when I was downtown in the relevant building, no. Here? Yeah, no, no, in New York, swearing, oh. swearing the oath. And I came out of there and into the sunlight and got a yellow cab and was going home through New York City, which I've lived for, you know, almost 20 years. And I looked out the window and I realized I was looking at it completely differently. You know? and, and like the phrase, my country, occurred to me. And I thought, oh, I see, okay, that. I'm American now. I'm now an American novelist. American citizen in the Twitter free, Salman Rushdie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Todd G. Levin. The news clip is from the BBC News, and the music is Eric Satie's Trois Nociennes, performed by Daniel Varsano on the Sony label. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. I am Pat Morrison. <laughs>